Our scripture reading today is from Philemon 19 through 25. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emma. That was wonderful. Uh, great job, especially on the difficult names. I know that was not, uh, you, you, you did them like a champ. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and uh, I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Christ Prez, and, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Um, it is May 29th, and uh, it's a holiday weekend for many of us. It's a weekend of remembrance, but it's also, uh, for many of us, it marks the start of summer. I know there are students in here who celebrated the fact that their last day of school was earlier this week, and I have two sons who are living their best life right now. Their, their cousins are in town, and, and summer's here. So every year when summer rolls around, I, I, uh, I can anticipate getting a question from my kids related to the finishing of the school year. It was just a couple weeks ago when one of my kids asked me, hey, Dad, do you know how we get prizes for finishing the school year? I said, no. And, and, uh, and notice he said for finishing the school year, not for finishing well, just finishing the school year. But truthfully, I have, I have no one to blame for this posture other than myself. I'm the one who set this precedent. Way back when my son was just in first grade, and he was bemoaning the fact that he had so much reading to do before the end of the school year, uh, so I told him, I said, hey, if you do this well, if you really focus and you do this well and you finish strong, you're going to get a prize. I said, what kind of prize, Dad? I said, a big one. I said, how big? I hadn't thought this through. And I, and, and so, but I wanted to make sure he was motivated, so I pulled it out of the air, a new bicycle. And I saw my wife in the background, her jaw dropped to the floor because you know she had used prizes as motivation too, but it was for things like, uh, I'll give you a cookie or, or a quarter. And so I, I came in pretty hot with a bicycle. And uh, this to say, I'm still entertained by these comments along the lines of, hey, I think the prize for, for getting uh, through eighth grade should be, and I said, no, 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 no prizes, no prizes. And I explained to my kids, this is your job. It, it's your job to do well in school and to help out around the house, not because you get a prize, but because it's your job. And you should want to do well. I also tell them when I go out to the yard, for example, and I cut the grass, I, I don't get paid to do that. No one gives me $10 to, to cut the grass, and, and, and my, my wife will go out there too, and she'll plant flowers and make it look really lovely. And, and no one is paying us to do any of that. In fact, it costs us something to do it. We go out there of our own free will, and we'll labor in the yard without expectation of repayment or prize. Why do we do that? We're not doing it because someone told us to do it. Why are we doing it? It could be a number of reasons. We, we don't want the neighbors to get mad at us. We don't want our, our, our property to, to devalue, or, or maybe, just maybe, maybe we enjoy going out there. Maybe we, maybe we, we actually want to go out there and do these things. But guess what? When I was a kid, I, I, my dad told me to go out there and cut the grass. And, and back then, I didn't cut the grass because I enjoyed it, I assure you. 
what was the sole reason for me going out to cut the grass back then? Because my dad said to do it, so I did it. Didn't have a choice, really, but here's the point. Somewhere along the way, between being a 12-year-old and now, somewhere in my adulthood, my motivation changed. I'm not cutting the grass anymore because I'm going to earn an allowance or even because my dad told me to. I have a whole new set of reasons and motivations. And one of those reasons just might be for the joy of doing it. Now, I realize every analogy breaks down after a point, and sometimes it's a real pain to go out there and cut the grass. But the fact remains, my motivation for doing it comes from somewhere else now. I have a new center, a new true north when it comes to to things like maintaining the household, and it's no longer because I've, I've simply been told As we take one last look at Paul's letter to Philemon this week, we we just read for you, uh, Emma just read for you a moment ago, the conclusion of that letter. And in that conclusion, we find a brief repetition of some of the themes and requests made in in, uh, this, uh, this letter to Philemon. He even states, confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So what is he saying? Let's, Let's review one more time. Onesimus, I'm sure... Philemon remembers Onesimus, a bondservant, a slave. Philemon had a claim on Onesimus. The exact nature of that claim we're not told, but what we do know is Onesimus left without permission. Left without permission from the one he had who had claim on him. He didn't want to be there. And presumably he might have even stolen something from Philemon as he left. And then somehow, some way, Onesimus finds himself, perhaps, in the very same prison cell as the Apostle Paul. Now, there's not universal agreement from the scholars on exactly how Onesimus and Paul crossed paths. Perhaps Onesimus on the run was captured and put in prison. Perhaps Onesimus intentionally sought out the Apostle as a means of helping his, his own cause. We just don't know. But, but the Lord saw fit to put the two of them together. Onesimus and Paul. And in so doing, Onesimus became a child of the living God. No longer a slave to sin, but free in Christ. A man of little resource now for him has been secured a permanent place at the king's table. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says, formerly he was useless to you. Formerly he was useless to you, Philemon. The language there suggests that he was of no profit to you, Perhaps because he had stolen something, or perhaps it was just that Philemon lost someone on which he made claim. But Paul says, he indeed is useful to me and you. He now is indeed profitable to me and you. This is why Paul tells him, refresh my heart in Christ, Philemon. You see, at the heart of this request, Paul is saying, what you need to understand, Philemon, is what I'm asking you to do here isn't just of benefit to Onesimus. It's not even just of benefit to Onesimus and and me. It's of benefit to Onesimus, me, to you, and to the rest of the church. See, the letter, though addressed to Philemon, is also addressed to the church that meets in his house. And in the signature, he names a number of other brothers in Christ. These people are greeting you too, Philemon. The whole church is watching because it affects us all. You see, what we have in this short letter from Paul to Philemon is a lesson for the church. It's a lesson on becoming a new creation in Christ. 
and the sanctification, the process of being made holy that accompanies becoming a new creation. So the two main headings I want to talk to you today about are a new creation in Christ and our sanctification. A new creation and our sanctification. Paul's explicit request to Philemon was an audacious one. It wasn't the norm, certainly not for the time. He asked Philemon to not only release his claim on Onesimus, but he asked Philemon to then send him back to Paul. It's believed that perhaps Onesimus was the very one delivering the letter to the church and to Philemon. Release your claim on him. Release your claim on him, Philemon, and send him back to me. And isn't it interesting the way that Paul frames the request? Have you ever heard someone say, not to sound rude, but... That is the universal cue that informs you something really rude is about to be said. And at first glance, it sounds like Paul is doing something similar to this. He says, I'm bold enough to command you to do what's required. And then once again, at the conclusion of the letter, I'll repay you whatever he owes to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. He's not saying nothing. He just said it. It's like Paul is saying, not to sound like an apostle, but... I am an apostle. You see, to be an apostle in terms of authority in the church, it's fair to say there isn't a greater authority. The concept of being an apostle doesn't find its origin in the Bible. In fact, in ancient times, even before the first century, a king, by his own royal authority, would grant apostleship to the one he would designate. And only the king could grant this authority, and he had to do so in person. And when he would send the apostle out to, his, uh, to be his representative, he would then go to speak to another nation or kingdom to deliver the royal message of the king. And it was expected that the apostle's words would receive the full weight and authority of the king, as if the king were there himself speaking. There was no distinction made. The apostle's words were the king's words, no less. And in the same manner, when Christ granted one apostolic authority, he did so personally, in person, and when he sent his apostles out, their words carried with him the full weight of Christ's words himself. It was the same authority the, the Lord granted the prophets of the Old Testament. When the prophet said, thus saith the Lord, they weren't giving their interpretation. They weren't giving their take on what those words were. They were delivering the words of the Lord, nothing less. So you see, Paul, an apostle, carried with him in terms of authority, the full weight of Christ's authority when he speaks to the church. And so Paul gives Philemon a subtle reminder, you know who I am, right? I could command you to do what you ought to do, Philemon. I could do that. I have that authority, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Why wouldn't Paul just tell him, do the right thing, Philemon, because I said so? The book of Philemon, believe it or not, is the third shortest book of the Bible by word count. It comes in at 335 words. The shortest book of the Bible is 3 John at 219 words. But the book of Philemon could have won the title for shortest book. Dear Philemon, release your claim on Onesimus and send him back to me because I said so. It's the right thing to do. Sincerely, Paul. 25 words by my count. Philemon, I could just command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm asking you to remember that you, Philemon, have a new center. You have a new motivation for doing the things that you do. Philemon, I could just command you to do this because I'm an apostle of Christ, but it's not Paul the apostle asking this. It's Paul, prisoner also for Christ. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm not coming to you from a place of strength, he's saying, though I do have that. 
I'm coming to you a place from a place of weakness, humility. I'm willingly and freely setting aside my rightful claim on you, Philemon. I'm releasing that claim. For what reason? For the sake of love. Not because I have to, but because I, I want to. I'm operating from a new center. In verse 14, Paul said, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And again, affirms that thought at the conclusion by saying, I know you'll do even more than I ask, Philemon. How does he know that? How does he know? So speaking of mowing the lawn, it was just a few weeks ago when I was out cutting the grass and I just finished cutting the backyard and was on my way up to the front when one of my boys came up to me and said, I'll do the front yard for you. I said, why? (laughs) And he said, because I'm a nice guy. (laughs) I stood there shocked for a moment. I didn't say this out loud, but what I thought to myself was, who are you? What have you done with my son? You look just like him. But you see, I shouldn't be surprised by things like this. He's growing up. He's maturing. Maybe some of the things that his mother and I say to him over and over and over again are are actually starting to sink in. Perhaps, by the grace of God, he too is operating from a new center. So what is this new center? What is this reorienting of our lives that flips things on their heads and gets us to operate in ways that are most of the time countercultural? And not only that, it even goes against the very instincts that are embedded deep down inside of us. The instincts that tells us to assert ourselves, grab what you can while you can. What causes Paul to say, I could come to you with authority, but I'm going to appeal to you from a higher standard, Philemon. I'm going to ask you to lay down your life. Why would he say yes? Paul is recapitulating a concept that he wrote about to the church at Corinth just a few years before this. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the verses just before that, Paul is laboring to tell the struggling church, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've placed your trust in Christ through his work to make you right before the Father, then that means you have died with Christ and you no longer live for yourself. You no longer live for yourself, you have a new center. You no longer are of this world. Your citizenship is elsewhere. Your old sin nature has been nailed to the cross with Christ. It was buried with him. And just as Christ was raised up by the Father, we are also raised up, as he tells us in Romans, we are raised up to walk in newness of life. Newness of life. You're a new creation. Onesimus is a new creation, just like you, Philemon. Paul's language there is very intentional when he speaks of being a new creation. It should conjure up images from the opening pages of the Bible. In the beginning, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void. There was nothing. And then God spoke. The whole universe was created, brought forth from nothing. So when Paul talks about you being a new creation... That's what he means. That's the image he's drawing upon. You are a completely new creation. He put something in you where there previously wasn't anything. This means you have impulses to do something where you previously had no impulse before. You have a desire to do good things where there previously was no desire to do good things. 
You have a desire to lay down your life when you previously had no desire to lay down your life. Instead of saying, what can I get from you so that I can advance my own cause? Now you say, my life for yours. Paul is saying, Philemon, I don't want to invoke my authority because I know you know what it means to be a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and Onesimus is a new man. He's a new creation. You see, Paul could have appealed to the Deuteronomic law and insist that Onesimus stay with him. The the law allowed for that. On the other hand, Roman law forbade you from harboring a fugitive slave, but instead, what does Paul do? He doesn't look to the Mosaic law. He doesn't look to the Roman law. Instead, he appeals to a higher authority. He says, he appeals on the basis of Onesimus' new status, and the new man says, I use my authority not as something to wield against you. I set it aside, give it to you, knowing you'll do the same because that's who we are in Christ. Philemon, I'm asking you to lay aside your claim on Onesimus. He's a new creation. Observe what I've done, Philemon. I'm an apostle, but now a prisoner. And do you know that this is the only letter that we have from Paul where he identifies himself as a prisoner in in the introduction? Not as an apostle, but as a prisoner. Not as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul is telling Philemon, I've set every claim to anything I had aside. The old man died, and now the new man is a prisoner for Christ. I lay claim to nothing but Christ. But even more, it's not that Paul is simply telling Philemon, hey, do as I do. Be like me, Philemon. I gave it all up, so should you. No, he's really saying, my life is patterned after Christ. Your life is patterned after Christ, too. Paul is is walking in the footsteps of Christ. We read in Philippians 2 that it was Jesus himself who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself. He divested himself of every right, every privilege he had being seated next to the Father in the heavens. He set every claim to anything he had aside and emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. God of the universe as a servant. It's this idea that undergirds the whole letter. Paul is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. He's walking in his footsteps, just like Philemon just like Onesimus. The old man has died, and now the new man lives. Dear friends, can I tell you something? If if you've put your trust in, in Jesus, then you are being conformed to the likeness of Christ right now. Right now. Right in this moment, you are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. In fact, he's never not doing that. You're walking in his footsteps. The old man has died and the new man has been raised and is being conformed to his likeness. You begin to want to be like Christ more and more. You want to do as he did. And yes, some days you reflect that more than others. But as you're being sanctified, you increasingly gain awareness that this is what the Father is doing in you, making you like his son always, every moment. By the time Paul gets to the conclusion of his request, he's he's made his appeal and he says in verse 15, for For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. That sentiment echoes what Joseph told his brothers all the way back in Genesis. Do you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? He was trapped by his brothers, 
and then thrown in a pit because of their jealousy of him. Instead of killing him, they decided to sell him off to a band of travelers who, who took him to Egypt. And after he was in Egypt, he found himself in the service of a man named Potiphar. And just when things started to turn around, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of making advances at her. And as a result, he was thrown into prison and he stays there for at least a couple of years. In prison, not for days, not for weeks, but years for something he didn't do. To make a long story short, he finally made his way out of prison by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. And in so doing, he saved Egypt from an impending famine. Pharaoh was so grateful that he made Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. So from that time, from the time that Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers to the time he was finally a free and honored man, some 13 years had passed. What do you suppose Joseph might have done if he ever got the chance to face his brothers again? They stole 13 years from him. Well, guess what? He did get a chance to face his brothers again. They came to him desperate, needing relief. Needing relief from the famine. They needed mercy. And when Joseph finally came face to face with his brothers, how did he respond? What claim did he have on his brothers? What rights did Joseph have to exercise in the moment? There wasn't a person around who would have objected if he simply said, off with their heads. I mean, they trapped him, they sold him, they were responsible for years of imprisonment. Who would blame him? But instead, what did he say? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That sounds a lot like what... Paul is telling Philemon, for this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But I want you to understand something. This isn't God just making lemonades out of lemons. This isn't God just dealing the best that he can with the hand that he's been given. No, this is God's sovereign design unfolding before our eyes. This is the miracle of sanctification. Paul reminds us again in Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's always sanctifying you. He's always conforming you to the image of his son in every circumstance, however miserable you might be in the moment, whatever sins have been committed against you. He even uses those circumstances to make us like Christ. Friends, this tells us that there is hope for everyone who is in Christ. There isn't a wasted moment of your life. Every moment the Father is about the business of conforming you to the image of his Son, even in the midst of mundane activities like cutting the grass and planting flowers, you reflect back the image to the one from whom you are cast. This is true even and especially for the one who suffers. Through the mistreatment and injustice that was laid upon Christ, he saved us. The Father was most glorified through the suffering of Christ. He reconciled people like you and me to himself through Christ's sufferings. And this is the pattern into which people like you and me are being cast. We're following in his footsteps. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. And it's with this understanding that Paul makes his request, Philemon... I know you understand this, but let me say it anyway. If Onesimus is a new creation, then that means he's a beloved brother. He calls him beloved brother, and you'll notice that beloved brother is the same thing Paul calls Philemon in the opening of his letter. The implication being that Philemon is beloved to Paul, so Philemon should regard Onesimus as a beloved brother as well, following Paul's model of loving his Christian brothers. Philemon, 
you're both people have been, who have, been, have put to death the old man and have been raised in the newness of life in Christ. You're the same now. You're the same. Whenever you look into the eyes of another Christian, you're looking into the eyes of someone who's being sanctified, just like you. You're not there yet, none of us. None of us are there yet, but we will be. We will be. And when you look into their eyes, you're getting a foretaste of what's to come. You're looking at, at somebody you're going to spend eternity with. You're looking into the eyes of someone who will have a seat just like yours at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And not only that, but you're going to get to spend all of eternity with the best version possible of that person. The one who's been perfected and conformed to the likeness of Christ. My friend, Russ Ramsey, your pastor, he and I have a fake feud going on and we engage in it for the purposes of our entertainment and for the entertainment of others. The other day he said something, this is just last week, he said something really nice to me. He said, I can't wait to spend eternity with the best version of you. It's a backhanded compliment. You see what he was saying as he was laughing under his breath, I can't wait to spend eternity with that version of you because I'm quite weary of this version of you. You and I, We look into each other's eyes and we joyfully anticipate what awaits us. Completion in Christ. We think of the reality that awaits us and we allow that to be reflected in how we live right now. We're reflections of Christ right now. My oldest son is at the age where he seems to be eating around the clock. He's 16 years old and he can't eat food fast enough and I hope he's enjoying himself now. Because he does this and he doesn't even gain a pound. In fact, I can't tell you how many times we've been sitting at the dinner table. We are in the process of actively putting food in our mouths. And he says, what's for dinner tomorrow? (laughs) We can't even get through this meal. And he's already asking about the next one. But I think I know where he gets it. I think I know where he gets this from. We'll be on vacation. We'll be sitting on the beach. And in the process of vacationing, my wife is already planning for the next vacation. We're in beach chairs And my wife says, hey, here's some ideas of where we can go next. I said, hey, maybe we just enjoy this one that we're on right now. But you know what this is in both cases? This is joyful anticipation. It's so looking forward to what awaits us that it just comes overflowing out of us. They can't help but anticipate what's next. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ the same way? Do you look at them with joyful anticipation knowing what awaits them in Christ? Do you help them in such a way that moves them one step closer to the reality that awaits? What if we always looked at each other that way? What if we always looked at each other in such a way that that reflected the joy of what we know awaits them? If we always looked at each other that way, would we ever resent one another? Would we ever feel competitive with one another? Would we ever cease to protect one another? Would we ever fail to provide for one another? Would we ever withhold forgiveness from one another? When we look at each other, what if we never sought what we might gain? But what if we always looked at each other at how we could sacrifice ourselves for each other? What can I give up for your sake? How can I bear your burden right now? What if we all said like Paul, who was reflecting the character of Christ when he said, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. 
when Christ looked at you, Christ looked at me, he didn't look at us and say, pay up. He didn't try to claim what was rightfully owed to him. Instead, he said, whatever they owe, charge it to me. He willingly accepted the debt of his people and paid that debt himself. May we do the same for one another ever and always. Pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this letter that you've preserved and, and saved for us. And our prayer is simple. Make us like your son. Make us like your son in every respect. Help us to reflect the reality of our hearts. Help us to remember the death of the old man and the newness of life that you've brought forth in the new. Thank you that you have given us hope in all circumstances. Help us to reflect this joyful anticipation to a world that seems like especially now so desperately needs to hear it and see it and know it. We ask this not for our sake, but for yours. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.